we come to the triumphal entry. Chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now when he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Then you will enter, and you will find the colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were with him were sent ahead and found it exactly as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying that colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and had Jesus get on it. Jesus is now ready to enter in Jerusalem, and he starts at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. So the temple faces, so if you're leaving the Holy of Holies and exiting out of the temple and out the gate right in front of the temple, you'd be faced towards the Mount of Olives, the eastern side. And so you go out the temple, down the hill into the Kidron Valley, or the Garden of Gethsemane, and then you go up that hill, the Mount of Olives. And then everything out there is the nations. And so Jesus starts at the Mount of Olives, and he's going to move westward into the temple. Now remember, moving westward is always good. Eastward is exile and walking away from God. Westward is moving into the temple. When you move east, you're exiting the house of God. When you move west, you're entering the house of God. So he tells them, I need a donkey. Go get it for me. Now the fact that he's telling them to go get it, he tells them exactly what they're going to find, exactly what they're going to be told, and exactly what they're going to say, and exactly how it's all going to work out. And it happens exactly the way that he said it. This is called command and compliance. And the idea is that they comply exactly to his commands in the light that everything happens exactly the way that he said that it would. This shows his divine knowledge over the circumstances and his divine control over everything. And the answer to the complaint of the owner of the donkey is... The Lord, the king, needs it. And that's all that matters. This is kingship language. The king can take whatever he wants, whenever he wants. The difference is, this king is a good king. He's not just stripping you for his own power. He's stripping you so that he can go to the cross and die for you. And give you everything. And so, it happens exactly the once. This demonstrates his divine knowledge and his divine authority over the circumstances that are happening around them. Exactly the way it says. Now, why does he want a donkey? Many people have interpreted this through a European lens that a donkey is kind of pathetic, they're slow, they're stubborn, and they're ugly. Therefore, this is a symbol of humility, that Jesus is riding in humble. The problem is that's a European culture. This is actually not a donkey in a Shrek kind of a donkey, or the way that we think of donkey. This is a wild donkey. And the donkeys in Israel are... Um, they're a little larger than a donkey, not as big as a horse. They're a little sleeker than a donkey, not as sleek as a horse. And they're a little faster than a donkey, but not as fast as a horse. They're in between. They're more like they're a mule. And I don't even know if mule even translates well in our culture anymore. Uh, we just use these words for everything, practically. This is the donkey. And remember, way back in the day, when we were first introduced to the first prophecy of the Messiah ever was Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And God said, 
And behold, the scepter will never depart from between your feet, Judah, until it comes to the one whom it belongs to. He will tie his donkey to the choicest vine and his colt to the branch. Because that donkey represents kingship. The scepter is kingship. He's going, and it says he's going to rule kingship. Donkey, kingship. Later we're told that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man. That's kingship. And the most specific reference is 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 through 40. When Adonijah, the son of David, is making himself king, because David is really old and tired and cannot do much and cannot get out of bed, his son starts taking the throne. His illegitimate, handsome, never been rebuked, incredibly wealthy son is trying to take the throne. And Bathsheba and Nathan go into David and say, look, this is happening. You've got to stop it. You said that Solomon would become king. Solomon is more godly than him. Make him king. And David says, put Solomon on my donkey and ride him through the streets to the Gihon Spring as everyone declares he is our king and they celebrate it and anoint him as king. And everyone celebrating him as king. That's the only, now that's a very common occurrence in the ancient world. To be placed on a donkey, ridden through the streets, and enthroned. But the only time that's ever recorded in the Bible is 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, and then now here with Jesus. And remember, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Jesus came to David and said, I will make an eternal covenant with you that I will always have a descendant of yours sitting on the throne of Israel. And that son will build my house. And David interpreted that as Solomon building the temple. But what God meant was that my son Jesus will build that temple. And the fact that these two incidences are the only two incidences in the Bible is the Bible making a clear reference back to Solomon saying, that's the son, Jesus, that God was talking about when he was talking to David. And even though Solomon was the correct king at the time, the ultimate king that he was really referring to was Jesus. And that will be made even more clear when we get to the Pharisees' questions against Jesus and Jesus responds with his own question. But we'll talk about that later. And so he writes, this is, this is enthronement language. And to make it very clear, the culture lets you know that they see this as enthronement kingship language because what do they all begin to do? They throw palm branches and their cloaks on the ground and they declare him Hosanna and the king has arrived. So everybody interprets it. Nobody's thinking, oh, he's so humble. They're thinking power, kingship. He's going to kick Roman rear in. Everything in this context suggests, not suggests, everything in this context makes it very clear that the king has come. So he approached the road leading down to the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice, praise God with a loud voice for the almighty works they had seen. And then they quote, Blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118.26. They literally say, Blesses the king. I don't know how so many pastors throughout the years have interpreted this as a moment of humility when everything in the context points to kingship, power, and ruling. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they kept silent, the very stones will cry out. They don't like this. The people are like, the king is here. And the Pharisees are like, if he's the king, we'll be dethroned and we'll lose our power and our authority over the people. I don't like that. They need to shut up. We need to control the media. And Jesus says, you can silence all the people you want, but all of creation knows that I am king. And if you humans go silent, creation never does. Yes, God can literally make stones start crying out, Hosanna to the king. But I think the implication is the mere fact that all this creation exists and the way that it actually does exist and the way that it functions is a testimony to the authority and the power of God in itself. Intelligent design. Now, I'm going to keep developing this entry, but first we've got to get to the temple. Chapter 19, verse 41. Now when Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you only knew, known on this day, even you, sorry, if you'd only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and surround you and close on you from every side, and they will demolish you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave within you one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of the visitation from God. They begin to reject him. And Jesus knows that the rejection of the current leadership and how deeply their worldview hooks are in the everyday normal people are, that eventually their leadership as the government and media will eventually lead to the people being disillusioned with Jesus and turning on Jesus and killing him. And this will be the official rejection of the Jews against Jesus, of Jesus, which will then bring the axe at the tree. So what Jesus is doing is he's connecting everything together. At the very beginning of his ministry, John the baptizer was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at near, and the axe is at the tree. And we talked about this then in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah came to Israel and Judah both, and he said, If you don't repent, the axe of the Assyrians will come and cut down this tree, the tree of Israel. And if you, Judah, do not repent, then the second axe of the Babylonians will come and cut you down of Judah. But because God always honors his covenant promises, a new shoot will rise up out of this trunk, the shoot of Jesse. So John the baptizer comes along and says, that shoot is here. The gospel writers make it very clear. The king, the descendant of David, the king is here. The son of David, everything is making clear that he's here. The shoot has arisen, but now there's a new axe, and it's the axe of the Roman Empire. And if you don't repent and receive this king and the kingdom that he's building, then the third axe of the Roman Empire will cut you down just like the first two. But this time, it's not going to regrow. It's going to be replanted in the Gentile nations. Three strikes and you're out. Now, I'm not saying that he's de-choosing the people of Israel. It's just he's moving through a different means. But that's a much complicated issue. Okay, And so this is then also illustrated in the fig tree. We talked about the fact that he came to the fig tree and he knows that it wasn't bearing any fruit. 
And so then he cursed it and said, I'll give it one more year. And then in Matthew's gospel, he comes back and it's still not bearing fruit. And he says, an axe needs to cut it down. And so what he now does, he says, you rejected me. And because you rejected me, the axe is coming. And he specifically begins to prophesy 70 AD. It's around the 30s right now. And so what he's saying is that when you reject me in 70 AD, this is exactly what the Romans did. They came in and they destroyed the temple. And they didn't just destroy the temple. They tore it down stone by stone and threw every single stone off the temple mount. The temple is on this large temple. So there's this large hill. And Herod the Great built this large flat temple mount to make the hill no longer round at the top, but totally flat. And he built the temple on it. They took every stone. Some of these stones are like a good 30 feet long and a good 20 feet wide. And they're like, they're taller than my head. They're about six foot, seven foot tall. And they weigh multiple tons. And the Romans pushed every single block off the top of the hill as an ultimate screw you to Israel. And Jesus says, the axe is coming. This rejection on this day that will lead to my death in a few weeks is the axe. Now, Peter in Acts chapter 2 will give him another chance to stay the ultimate axe. But they'll reject that too. And so what Jesus is saying is that that judgment is coming and you'll be surrounded by the Gentiles. And this will all go to the Gentiles. This will all go to the Gentiles. Then Jesus entered the temple, verse 45, courts and began to drive out those who were selling things there, saying to them, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. But you will turn into a den. But you have turned into a den of robbers. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple courts and the chief priests and the experts in the law and the prominent leaders among the people were seeking to assassinate him. But they could not find a way to do it for all the people hung on his words. What is the significance of all this? We talked about this in the transfiguration. In chapter 9, we saw Jesus go up on a hill and transform into the glory of God. This is all tied together. The glory of God transformed there, the triumphal entry, and the moving into the temple. So Ezekiel chapter 1 through 10. Ezekiel had a vision. The Jews were always like, oh, God won't destroy us. God won't destroy us. We have the temple and God dwells in the temple. And no foreign nation can destroy us or the temple because God is with us. So Ezekiel then has a vision. And in this vision, he has a vision of the glory of God sitting on his mobile chariot, being pulled by the cherubim. It's the image of the four cherubim standing each corner of the chariot. And they have wings covered in multiple eyes, standing next to, um, or sorry, the wheels with multiple eyes, and they're standing next to it. And they can move left and right and forwards and backwards and up and down as quick as lightning. And above them is this fire, tornado of fire coming out of him, an expanse and a throne. And on the throne sits Yahweh the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. And he sees it. This is the most clearest example, vision of God, other than Isaiah chapter 6 and um, Daniel 7 that we have in the entire Bible. These three visions are the clearest and most visual visions of God on the throne that we have. And so he sees the glory of God leaving the Holy of Holies. It leaves moving eastward 
out of the Holy of Holies, out of the Holy Temple, out of the actual city of Jerusalem. It goes down into the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, and it moves eastward towards Babylon. And the idea is, I can destroy this city, because when my glory leaves, the temple is just a building, and the city is just a city. But don't worry. You're going to be carried off into exile, and I'm going to exile with you. I'm going before you into Babylon, and I will be there in Babylon with you because you're my chosen people, even though the axe has come against the tree. The next thing that Ezekiel sees is the Babylonian army coming over the Mount of Olives, down to the Kidron Valley, and up, and it destroys the entire temple. And that's the judgment of God. Then Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 has a vision. At this time, he has a vision of a temple. The temple is rebuilt, but the temple is bigger than what it used to be. And it says four very significant things about this temple. The first is the temple has not one gate in and out that is small and walls that are huge. It has gates on each side of the temple that are huge and the temple wall is incredibly small. And the idea is that this is going to be open to all the nations to enter in from all directions. The second very significant thing that is mentioned about this, so there are four very significant things. The second is that the prince of the king sits in the temple gate. I am the gate, and no one comes through except through me. My sheep know my name, and they come to me through the gate. It's Jesus. He is the gate now that will bring them in and out. And the third thing that is very significant, the glory of God then returns into this temple. Glory of God returns into the temple, coming over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, up into the temple. Fourth is that a river flows out of the temple, and it goes out the southern side of the temple, and then it flows to the entire world, breaks off into multiple branches, and it turns the entire world into a Garden of Eden. And it goes to the Dead Sea and gives it life. And the idea is that the deadest body of water in the entire world is going to be turned into a tropical garden. And he's going to bring the garden to the entire world. And then all the nations flood into the temple. With the implications following those rivers back to its original source. And they all flow into the temple. The, the nations and the cripple and the lame and the poor. Everybody comes to it. The Jews obviously thought that this was going to be fulfilled when they built the temple again. This is the new temple we're going to build because the temple is where God is. When they came back in 536 BC, they rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. And when they rebuilt the temple, it was kind of pathetic and everybody cried, but they weren't just crying because it didn't look as awesome as Solomon's temple but because the glory of God never returned. And because it never returned, the river didn't go. And then not only that, we saw this in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they begin to drive the nations away. You're not one of us. We don't want you. And then Zechariah comes along and he condemns them and says, nothing's going to change until you actually start trusting in God. So the glory of God has never returned. So all of a sudden, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals himself as the glory of God. Now, I know I've gone probably, I went through all this when we did the Transfiguration, but repetition is the hallmark of learning. Um, repetition is the hallmark of learning. 
he reveals himself as the glory of God in the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he begins to move towards Jerusalem. And then it says that he started on the Mount of Olives and came down the Kidron Valley and into the temple. So he is literally the glory of God returning into the temple now. And then when he gets in the temple, he calls it my father's house. He did this once in the beginning of his ministry, and he does it at the end. We saw this in John chapter 2, verse 29. He calls it my father's house. But now, at the end of his life, he's calling it my house. It was his father's house. So he's made it very clear that this temple is my father's house. But if you tear it down, in three days I'll rebuild it. Pointing towards that. He then says this, My house. This is my house. And he's making it very clear that I'm the one who's going to rebuild this temple. And the temple that God was talking about to David, that your son will rebuild the temple, is me. Now this is significant because in John chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I'll make a place for you to be in it. What he's doing here is he's making it very clear that this temple is going to be destroyed. The, the, the Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy it. But my death and resurrection is going to rebuild a new temple. It's the temple that Ezekiel prophesied. And when that temple is rebuilt, the glory of God will be in it because I am the glory of God. And the river will come out of it because when you pierce my side on the cross, the water will come out and then the blood. And that will be the Holy Spirit, according to 1 John. And 1 John will say that Spirit will go out to all the world, baptizing them and anointing them. And all the nations will start flowing into the body of Christ. And now the body of Christ is not the Jewish people. It's everybody from all the nations can receive the Holy Spirit. And the many rooms that I'm building is you. That you're all temples, little temples being built into Christ. And so in this sense that the, mini, the mansion, the house that he's building is not in heaven for us. The house is now. And so he's going to tear down that one room temple, that one holy of holies room temple that only the high priest can go into. And he's going to rebuild it through the cross. And it's going to have many rooms in it. And it's going to be all of us dwelling in Christ. That's why we're to remain in him and he'll remain in us. We're all living stones being built into Christ. And we are the temple. And this is the fulfillment of prophecy that Ezekiel was talking about. And this is what Peter's going to point to in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit begins to indwell us as the believers. And this is the temple. Now, I know I've gone through these connection of dots on multiple occasions throughout the past at different books. But I think this is one of the most important connecting of dots that I could ever make in the entire Bible. Because the whole point is that this is when we get to Hebrews chapter 9. He makes it very clear that long ago, the law and the tabernacle were external things to point us towards God. But now, today, we are in Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. And Christ is the greatest embodiment of it. And we are all in Christ. And if we keep looking forward to a physical building of a temple as the coming of Christ, and we keep thinking that heaven is this mansion that God is building, then we keep falling into the same trap that the Jews did, that everything that God is doing is merely external. External relics, external temples, external behaviorism. 
And we need to realize that everything that Christ did in the First Testament as the Word, the second member of the Trinity, is all pointing to this bigger, internal temple, glory of God, and dwelling in the Spirit in us, relationship with God, having a room in the temple that is literally our body where we can dwell at Him, to lead to a greater transformation of the world, a greater Garden of Eden, a greater river that will transform everything and bring a greater kingdom of God and a true goodness in all of creation. And we need to realize that the Bible is not nearly content with external, simple things in the faith. The Bible is desiring and wanting and will one day claim every nook and cranny of all creation, including your heart. And that's where the heart it starts, is the heart. And if we don't really truly understand our identity in Christ, what it really truly means that we are the temple, that the Shekinah glory of God literally dwells in us, that we are literally the fulfillment of all these prophecies through Christ, and that He is the only thing that made all this possible, and that what He made possible is a much deeper, earth-shattering idea than just physical buildings and laws and behavior, but it was an internal reality of who we are in our identity in Christ, then we really will not understand what it means for us to be the garden expansion. The ones who are really about making all of creation look like the temple. Because the ultimate idea is that the temple will come down to earth. And all this is only possible if he kills everything that we value that is not him. The cross is him killing our judgment, conquering the death, conquering sin, conquering the grave, conquering the devil that then we then match that sacrifice with us sacrificing everything that we value in this world on the altar, just like Abraham did with his son. And that only when that happens can the fullness of the glory of God indwell in us and everything that he's been talking about, that what a true follower acts like, what a true follower truly invests in, what a true follower actually values, what a true follower actually executes in his life, That is only possible when you really, truly get who you are in Christ.